And so I always say it's attention, affirmation, and affection when you can encourage people. If you criticize them, they won't change. If you encourage them, they may change. Everybody has a gift. Some people have gifts. No one has all the gifts. And Jesus does that on purpose so that we need each other. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, your co-host, and I am sitting here with Michael Easley. Good morning, Dad. Good morning. How are you doing today? I am great. It good. is a nasty day in Nashville, though. Well, but rain's a good thing. I guess. <laughs> it's humid. What is it, Acts 14.7 or 7.14? I get it switched. God did good and that he gave, gave us rains to remind us. So, you know, without rains, you're... Crops don't grow, your grass isn't green, your yes. crepe myrtles look bad. Come Thank on. you for taking that to a spiritual Just, level that's for me. Free. <laughs> I'm thinking about my hair, you know, oh, humidity, oh, 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 rain. Oh. It's nasty out there. Sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you all have been really enjoying the leadership process. We are now in episode eight of this series, which is crazy. But let's jump into today. So, Dad. Where are we headed in episode eight of the leadership process? Well, Nehemiah has completed building the wall. Hard to believe in 52 days, the structure is now in place. In chapter eight, we have a change where Ezra enters the scene. Ezra is the priest, and it's an important reminder that this is a priestly role to teach and expound the scriptures. So Nehemiah is going to take a bit of a sidestep while Ezra enters the storyline, and we're going to read and hear what happens now Let's go back again. The wall had to be rebuilt to protect the people who inhabited inside the city. Most importantly, the only place they could worship God according to festival and feast was at the place where he put his name. So this goes back to Mount Moriah where Abram was going to sacrifice his son. This is where the temple complex was built. So now we've got the structure in place. And now all this led up to worship. And so Ezra's going to read a portion of scripture. It's a compelling chapter, and it's a good reminder for all of us, whether you're a leader in a local church, whether you attend a church, what is the foundation of what that church is about and what worship is about when we understand God from his word. What happens when people hear the Word of God? What happens when we understand Scripture? What happens when Scripture is more than black words on white paper or on a device that we hold in our hand? What we're going to study in chapter 8 primarily of Nehemiah is how the Word affects people. In one sense, you might call this chapter the ideal congregation. In another way, we might call it the true response as a worshiper. When we read through this chapter, there are a number of words I want to kind of season our thinking with. One is unified. The people come together 
all come together to worship God. Secondly, there's a discernment going on in this chapter. We're listening and hearing God's word, and we're moving beyond an academic exercise to discerning this information, what it means. Thirdly, the people paid attention. They were an attentive audience, and whether you've been bored in a sermon or a presentation or a seminar or a conference, or you have the uh, privilege of being a speaker of a workshop or a session or teaching a Bible study or leading a group discussion, you know how important it is that people pay attention. Well, we're going to see some interesting responses to Ezra explaining the Bible and how people responded. Fourth, there's a reverential worship throughout this chapter we're going to dip into. Fifth, when people hear the word, how do they respond? And we're going to be struck with the sadness and the repentance and the brokenheartedness people have when they hear it. Sixth, there's the command to be joyful, which we'll look at in some detail. It's it's interesting. Be happy. Be joyful. We don't think of it that way, but we need to understand what Nehemiah and Ezra are accomplishing in this section. And then finally, obedience. So, real quickly again, a unified group listening, a discerning ear hearing, an attentive audience embracing and listening, a reverential and worship response to the word, repentance when the word pierces their head and heart, a joyful response to it, even though they are mournful, and then finally, an obedience to what God has done. Well, let's look at some of the verses that our friend Jason Germain has so eloquently read for us. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. First of all, notice again, Ezra's a scribe. He's the one who comes on the scene. We remind ourselves from Scripture, prophet, priest, and king were the three roles. No individual had all of those. In this sense, we see Nehemiah as a kind of prophet. He's the one calling people to rebuild. He's not a priest. He's not in the position to read the law. So we've got to bring a priest in. Ezra is the scribe. Of course, who's going to be the prophet, priest, and king? Our soon-coming Messiah. But in the 
interim, we don't have anyone that possesses all of those roles. So Ezra the scribe comes, and he's given the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. It's a simple sentence, but one that deserves a little attention. The law was given to Moses. You remember Moses went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and God gave him the law. We think of those two Ten Commandments, those two stone carving things that he brought down. He broke the first set, of course. He went back up later, and God gave him a new set. The finger of God carved those. In my sanctified imagination, I believe that's Jesus Christ, a Christophany, up on the mountain with Moses. It's not just him chiseling words into stone. The point of this was he gave him a corpus of law. The Ten Commandments, or the so-called Decalogue, was the, let's say, the summary view, but the law encompassed much more that we read in the Pentateuch. And that was what God gave Moses on Sinai. So these scrolls, don't think of a big book on a wooden platform, they're scrolls that Moses had later that oral tradition was put to writing and Ezra is a scribe. The word scribe is important. It literally means one who counts or keeps an account. So we've got a priest who's a counter in counting the law, keeping account of the law, keeping the law on record, and he's going to open this book of the law of Moses, listen to what Nehemiah says, which the Lord had given to Israel. So the book that you hold in your hand or the device where you open the Bible these words in the Old Testament, primarily the Pentateuch, were given by God to Moses, his servant. But the origin, God gave them to Israel. So the possession of this chosen people, remember we talked about God's chosen people and God's covenant promises. They were given to Moses to give to God's chosen people, the Israelites. So Ezra brings this law in front of this group of people. It says in verse 2 again, the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. A little sidebar again. Remember, they've been in captivity during the 70-year captivity period and prior captivities. Many of them did not know the language. If you were born outside of a Hebrew-speaking culture, you might know Persia, you might know other ancient Near Eastern languages, but you might not be super up to date on your Hebrew. So when the Hebrew and Aramaic language are interspersed in the Bible, some of these listeners would not have understood it. So keep that in mind. We're given a time stamp. The first day of the seven months, we'll come back to that. He read the law before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. So that's at least three hours. We're going to learn later. There's much more going on here in the presence of these men and women who could hear, and they were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra, the scribe, stood at a wooden podium, which they made for this purpose. You know, for years I always thought that was a pulpit. I mean, after all, every church has got a wooden pulpit, unless, of course, you're cool and hip and have an acrylic one, or one from Ikea, or maybe some, you know, cool vibe you've got. The wooden podium is not the way we envision a pulpit today. The word is migdal in Hebrew. Migdal means a tower. The wooden platform would be a better translation because there's 13 men that are mentioned in the next verse. So envision like we talk about a days where people sit at a head table or the front of an auditorium. So there's obviously Ezra up there, but these are scrolls. 
He's not opening a book on a wooden podium like you might envision an old-school pastor with a big Bible on a big wooden podium he can pound for emphasis. There's scrolls that are being held. He may have held them. He might have had assistant scribes who unrolled the scroll so that he could follow along and read them. And these are panels that are sewn together, not like a book we have, so that's why they're rolled. And, of course, Hebrew is not read from left to right, but right to left. So the scrolls unrolled, and Ezra the scribe stands on this, let's call it a platform. So we might think of an audience that sits on a dais, sometimes pronounced dais, or a dais, where you have tables, like the head table, and the audience is looking at these dignitaries or invited guests. Think of it in that way. So Israel has assembled. There's this large wooden tower platform that's built, elevation, more than likely. So these 13 people plus Ezra could stand on this platform and they could read and explain the law. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. Now we need to see that as unrolling the scroll in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above, again that gives us the explanation, this is a raised platform, above all the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up. That's chilling to me. Think of all the process of building this wall. Think of all the threats of Sam Bout. Think of the internal conflict. Think of all that Nehemiah had prayed and planned to come to this day. It wasn't about rebuilding a wall. It was about rebuilding a wall to enable worship to reoccur in the place where God had established his name. And there's got to be a grandeur about this. Everybody stood up. And then we read, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed low and worshiped the Lord, faces to the ground. You gotta see tears. You've got to see an overwhelming impulse. People were blown away in our lingua franca. They were amazed. They were astonished. This is the day we waited for. So there's regalia, there's pomp and circumstance. More than likely, Ezra was garbed to the hilt. This was a special occasion. This platform had been constructed. This is worship. And this is the first time in a long time these exiles have come home. They've repatriated their homeland. And now Ezra stands up and opens the book that came from Moses, that God gave to Moses. They stood up. They lifted their hands. Amen. Amen. And then they bowed low and they worshiped and their faces were on the ground. We don't think of worship in those terms today. We think of worship of waving our hands in the air, maybe closing our eyes, maybe smiling when we sing praise and worship songs. I don't mean to demean, but this is a different kind of worship. This is understanding he's holy, he's awesome, he's God. This is the very word of God. And this audience understood that. And they were amazed they were devastated and they were on their ground with what they were about to hear verse 8 they read from the book of the law translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading now again this is one of those verses that a lot of us pastors we go hey that's it that's exposition and in a way it is the word translating which might be a little different in other english versions but in the New American Standard, it really means to explain something. So they're reading it and explaining it. Now, I can't prove this bulldogmatically, but let me give you a sense of what I think is happening. 
Ezra's reading these passages, but these 13 men who are accompanying him on his right and left hand, and probably others, we would call them scribes or part of the rabbinic order, they are explaining things to the people. So in my mind, Ezra's reading a little bit, and then we might think of little small groups or cell groups or Bible study groups going on in the audience, so to speak, for our language. So this isn't just a 20-hour or 10-hour or 12-hour worship service where Ezra is just you know, preaching this incredible sermon, as we would call it. Here's a leader, a priest, who's translating, explaining to give the meaning of the passages. Now, one other possibility. The word translating here, and the reason some of our translators opted for that word, if our audience didn't understand the original language Ezra was reading, translating might have a literal feature here. In other words, some of these Hebrew scribes would be explaining it to those that didn't know Hebrew. And that is a valid possibility. And again, we can't be bulldogmatic. We can take verse 8 from a higher level and understand they, it's plural here, and we've got this list of names in verse 7, they read from the book, from the law of God, we're reminded it's not just a book, it's God's word, and they explained it so that the people understood the reading. Let's just pause for a second and draw a lesson from this. When it comes to teaching the scripture, we who open a book, men's studies, women's studies, community groups in your home, small groups, BSF, Precept, uh, wherever you're opening this book, this isn't your book. It's not your idea. This isn't some, let me tell you a neat story I learned in, you know, when I was in fifth grade, which can be a great illustration. You're talking about God's word that he gave to God's people. And we need to have a holy response to this. I had a pastor when I was young in the faith, Dr. Bob Tolson, who pastored a church in Houston, Texas. And he had this phrase, don't fool around in the things of God. When we're opening his scripture, we need to take it very seriously. We need to understand we are telling people, this is what God says. And when you have an audience, and I use that term widely, when you have listeners who hear God's word, it's God's word and God's spirit who do the work, not you or me. It's God's spirit and God's word who affected them to lift up their hands, to bow and worship with their faces to the ground, and to want to know what this book meant. So from a personal point, from a personal application, if you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, if you stand in front of a group and open a Bible, let me give you a little dose of fear and a little dose of courage. Be very, very careful what you're about to tell people what this thing means. Take it very, very seriously and have the courage to do it. Well, the chapter continues and Nehemiah verse 9 is now reintroduced into the story. So in chapter 8, the first eight verses, we're getting an account of the priest, Ezra, explaining the law and then other rabbinics, other priests, other scribes are explaining it among the large people group. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. 
for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. So as you listen to Jason, three times you heard holy. This day is holy. This day is holy. This day is holy. What does that word mean? Holiness is a comprehensive subject, but for the sake of our time, it means set apart. It means something that is special. I've often told the story, when my maternal grandmother died, I inherited uh, some of her possessions. We have my grandmother's china. It's a simple dogwood pattern. It's 120 maybe or more years old. Uh, Most of the gold edge around the china has worn off the plates and some of the cups are chipped. It's very fine china. But there's one piece called the tureen. Now, for us common folks, it's a gravy bowl, (laughs) but it's called a tureen. It's a forged piece of china where the the plate on the bottom and the gravy bowl on the top are one unique piece put together. It's unlike any other piece in the set, and it's perfect because it was so rarely used. So none of the gold on the edge has been worn off. It never goes in the dishwasher. It's always hand-washed. And it sits in the middle of the china cabinet and always has in our house. That was set apart. You didn't let the grandchildren take that out and make mud pies with it. You didn't use it to mix some you know, small set of ingredients in it. The tureen was the centerpiece. Sometimes the teapot is the centerpiece of a set like that. Now all that just to say it's set apart. It's unique. It's special. It's important. It's pretty. Think of the term holy in that way. This day is set apart. This day is special. This day is unique. This day is important. This day we need to pay attention. Wouldn't that recalibrate a lot of us when we think about serving God as a holy God and our work is holy unto him? In Nehemiah, it says this day is holy to the Lord your God. This day is holy to our Lord. Be still, for this day is holy. So it's set apart. So let's not turn this into some religious artifact or some uh, religious system. We have to be holy. It begins with a mindset, with proper understanding of Scripture, and then how we apply that. Some things are to be set apart. There was a time growing up, I vividly recall, living in Texas, we had blue laws. You might remember this if you grew up in the South. And if you went into a store, they would have these areas taped off that you couldn't go in and buy certain goods. You could buy eggs and milk and cheese and certain things like that. And the blue laws prevented you from buying other things. Silly history, but the idea was you just don't need to have all this stuff on Sunday. I find it interesting in many states they close the liquor stores on Sunday. You can buy it the rest of the week. You just can't buy it on Sunday. And, of course, now most stores are open every day of the week, all year round. Even Thanksgiving now, they're opening after Thanksgiving, and some are even opening Christmas afternoon. 
I digress. Make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. That's what the merchants always want to do. But if you went back in American history, there was some common sense to it. One day take a break. One day don't sell and trade. One day rest. Goes back to Sabbath. Goes back to Shabbat. Can you trust God to work six days and take one off for rest? Now, it doesn't mean you're just watching sports or doing your hobby. The idea of setting something apart as holy was reflection, contemplation, understanding who this God is, lingering long in the Word, taking time. And Ezra and Nehemiah are saying, this day's holy. Don't mourn. Don't weep. Interesting, the response for worship, verse 9, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Can I ask you the last time you've wept when you've heard the word read? When was the last time you were reading your devotion or studying the Bible or studying Scripture and something so gripped you, you cried? Maybe it was conviction. Maybe it was overwhelmed by his love for you. Maybe it was just, how can he love me? Maybe it was grace. Maybe it was mercy. This wretched person I am that I deserve nothing. And listen to what he says. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many times have we read that in scripture? Let me suggest here this notion of renewal and revival that we so often hear about has nothing to do with mustering up people, having lots of meetings. We used to have weeks of revival, church renewal seminars, books on renewal. All can be fine, well, and good. Renewal, biblically, is when Scripture is brought back front and center. Renewal in the Bible is when you read the Scripture and God's Word and God's Spirit impact you. That's renewal. We don't have to wait for a season of renewal. We don't have to wait for some seminar or some new book on how to be revived or, Lord, bring revival to our country. Well-intentioned though it be, let me suggest a bit misguided. Renewal and revival occur when the individual believer exposes himself or herself to scripture and God's spirit impacts that scripture on your life and mine let me ask you a little more uncomfortable question have you ever wept when you read the word and if not what does that tell you about your own spiritual journey I remind you he's not mad at you he's not upset with you he loves you but is there not a sense when we're reading the very word of God that it should not have great impact on our hearts, on our souls, on our lives. I find it personally encouraging because I'm one who gets overwhelmed and convicted and I'm, I'm one who cries more than smiles. I'm in church services and people are raising their hands and smiling and singing and happy and I go, I wish I was that kind of person. <laughs> I'm just not. When I worship, the tears come. The overwhelming, like, why, Lord, why do you love me? Why do you care about me? I can't get over this. And I see that in Nehemiah. They weep. But listen to the command that comes. And it is a command. Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went out to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. You see, teaching only occurs when the recipient understands. 
An educator only accomplishes his or her goals if the student learned. A friend of mine talked about his grandmother saying, I'm going to learn you, boy. And that's a good way to remember it. When you and I have been taught something, just because we wrote it down in our Bible or a notebook or on our computer or on our phone doesn't mean we embraced it. But when you learn a thing, it changes you and you understand it. Understanding then moves to application. So far in chapter 8, Ezra's read the law. The people are blown away in our vernacular. Their faces are on the ground. There is some sadness, some repentance. There's grief going on. But this is a holy day. Don't be discouraged and depressed. Sure, don't run away from that right away. But understand, this is renewal. This is God's work working in your life. And now he declares a celebration. Then, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded, through Moses, that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills, and bring olive branches, and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Well, we've moved from the reading of the law, we've moved from the people's response, we've moved from the proclamation this is a holy day, And now we're introduced to essentially what is the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was part of the Mosaic Law that they were to build these temporary shelters. And for seven days, it's kind of like a camp out, but it's also a celebration. Notice again what Jason read. The Levites were gathered together with Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight on the words of the law. So the teaching is continuing. They found written in the law the Lord had commanded. Through Moses, the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, they couldn't do this when they were in exile. They couldn't have any of the celebrations of Passover, the Feast of Booths, any of the offerings because they weren't in the city. They weren't in the place where God established his name. That was the only location they could do these things. So now they're going to celebrate with this Feast of Booths. Let's step back from the text a bit. The word's been read people responded, they listened, it grieved them, they embraced it, they're commanded to celebrate, and they move into seven days of celebration. They're obeying. So now they're going to go out with wild olive branches and myrtle branches and palm branches, anything they can find, essentially, to make these lean-tos. And we're told specifically in verse 16, around the courts of the house of God, near the water gate and the gate of Ephraim. And there's 
more than likely just some pragmatics to this because you have to bring water and supplies in and out of the city and if you have a lot of people setting up temporary shelters of course they're going to need food and water verse 17 the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity were reminded again of our history these were captives under the Babylonian captivity then the Medes and the Persian and now they're coming back to their home so this is the group that's come back. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun, and there was great rejoicing. Verse 18 again. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Extensive teaching lessons are now moved to intensive teaching lessons to borrow from Derek Kidner. This is to show how serious this whole affair was. It wasn't simply a party. I was in a church service some time ago and the pastor uh, taught a great message. He really did. It was a fine exposition and he wanted the church to celebrate. And so they brought out beach balls and silly string and other things and they had everybody stand up and knock these beach balls around and shoot silly string in the air and so forth and so on and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry his explanation of a fine passage and he did a fine job in the exposition was to be silly I don't think that's what's happening in Old Testament or New Testament celebration this is about God this isn't about trying to be a rock concert or frisbees and balls are tossed around the audience and you know we push it around and laugh at each other for being silly nothing wrong with doing that nothing wrong with doing that at a party in a proper setting but i hardly think that's what the solemn celebration was about this was about being exposed to god's word the conviction of god's spirit in people remembering their past remembering they've been in exile because of their sin and now in god's great kindness they've been restored and brought back and they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles that he intended for them to prepare themselves for worship. Well, let's land Nehemiah chapter 8. To quote Derek Kidner, Scripture is the guiding principle of the Jewish life, and it was powerfully initiated. Or to say it for you and me, the foundation of your life is God's Word. I've said it for many years, God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. It must begin with God's Word renewal revival these terms we use all this new cliche fads isms ologies that come along there, there can be some good in them i'm not throwing them all out but at the baseline we begin with the authority of god's word he gave it to moses it originated from the lord given to moses given to his people israel given to the world the book you hold in your hand the device you use to access the Bible, this is not like any other piece of literature on the planet. It is an otherworldly document that was handed to you and me. Isn't it fascinating that the God of the universe gave us a book? Now, not literally and physically the book you hold, but the words that are contained in this book, the metonymy, the book that you have, anybody can read it. Anyone can listen to it. Most people groups have access to their language now. So God told a story, if you want to use that word, for us to read, for us to hear. The question is, do we respond? 
The question is, are you exposed to it? Scripture must be the authoritative guiding principle of your life. It's not just another help book. It's the very living word of God given to you and me. That's what in context is all about. If this book is another ology or ism or philosophy or way of life, then I would say stop reading it. But if it's the living word of God that transforms people's hearts and minds, that brings us from sin, from darkness, into forgiveness and into light, from eternal separation to an eternal relationship with him, who paid for your sin, paid for my sin, in our place, on our behalf instead of us. Don't fool around in the things of God, as Bob Tolson would say. This is the living word of God, active, still able to convict us, to encourage us. You may weep, you may cry, you may smile, you may laugh, but do it in a way that aligns with and honors God at his word. I will never forget the light bulb moment I had in a theology class that God could have given us a systematic theology textbook. (laughs) He could have written clear doctrine, a thousand point, you know, whatever he wanted to know. This is exactly what I want you to believe, exactly what I want you to do. But instead he gave us story after story after story. Some are clear doctrine. Some are stories of failure, of triumph, written over thousands of years, right? With 39 authors, 66 books, all telling the same greater story. It's pretty phenomenal to think what he chose to inspire and have written down and preserved over all those years for you and I to have today. Years ago, um, I sat across from an imam and a group of leaders from his his mosque, and I was with uh, two dear friends who are now both with the Lord, John Malone and J.T. Walker. This imam had memorized the whole Koran, and we sat across in a restaurant of their choosing, and we talked about this very issue. And the biggest challenge for them, interestingly, was how could so many different authors write this Bible? Because, of course, they believe Muhammad, sure. the great prophet, wrote the entire Quran. Sure. And it was an interesting discussion. This was pre-terrorism and pre-9-11. And I'll never forget trying to explain, and, and JT and uh, Ralph Weitz was also present, who's a very good apologetic guy, explaining with 39 contributors and the story being so consistent, yeah. doesn't that add credibility Absolutely. to the Bible as opposed to take away. Yeah. But that was the stopping point for this email. Huh. He said, I cannot believe the Bible because it was not written by one author. Interesting. So inspiration, uh, whether it comes to 39 people or one, of course, is a point of theological debate. But you're right. The corpus of the literature that we hold from Job being the oldest story to uh, perhaps First John uh, or, or one of the later New Testament books. When you look at that corpus of literature, that the storyline of redemption, of salvation, of Christ's substitutionary death in our place, grace, mercy, the storyline is astonishing from Adam all the way to Revelation. Mm-hmm. 
and yet people still have a problem with Scripture for all kinds of reasons, Mm -hmm. which is why I love the wordplay that we use in context, because they're taking things out of context Mm -hmm. and misapplying it as opposed to sewing the story together to see how that thread goes all the way through from the beginning to the end of time. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget, we had Annie Downs on the show a couple uh, episodes ago now, but it was the last episode of season two. And she talked about the one thing she wants her guys and girls that she disciples to know or believe is that the word is truth. The Bible is completely true and trustworthy, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to wrestle with it your whole life. And thinking about the way that the rabbis would, you know, debate and wrestle with it, just the way that theologians and pastors do today, that's the way that we should be wrestling with it today. It's truth. We know it can stand on its own. We know everything in it is trustworthy. It's inspired by God. It is without error, but it doesn't mean you're not going to wrestle with it every day of your life. Well, and there's things we can't always align. There there are there are parts of the Bible that you know, are complicated. Twain said at colloquial, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's those parts I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, transmission of literature, oral tradition, translation of some complicated verses that doesn't lessen inerrancy or authority what it tells us is language is cumbersome and flawed and as communicators we're poor in translating which is so interesting that that Ezra is explaining it to people so even at that time period uh, when these people of course lived in a day when the temple complex had been present when they had lived in those city walls some of them obviously had had memories of living in Jerusalem prior to exile, and yet they didn't believe it. Well, to shift gears back to the leadership process, you identified two other traits coming out of chapter eight that we want to look at real quick and pull in some conversations from subject matter experts. The first is that great leaders are encouragers. So we see in chapter 8, verse 9, Nehemiah re-enters the account, and he speaks and says to the people, this day is holy. And, of course, they're overwhelmed, they're prostrate, they're on the ground, they're weeping. And the command is, verse 11, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And then he sends them out to this party. So when they're overwhelmed by their own sin and grasping what God has done, don't forget what we've just accomplished by God's great hand. And let's go back and see what the law taught probably these people were unaware of Deuteronomy and Levitical law about the Feast of Booths. And that may well have been part of what they were also explaining. Hmm. And so the rest of the chapter is the Feast of Booths is reestablished. So now we're moving from this, what have we done? We're undeserving. How can we respond? And he says, the way you respond is you worship and you celebrate what God has done. So we talked to Coach Steckel about encouraging people and the power that that has in their lives. I mean, can you over-encourage people? You know, I don't know if you can. Uh, I I learned something many, many years ago uh, as a coach that players, individuals, young men and women, uh, they crave three things. And uh, my wife teases me about, and and people who've worked with me, you know, it's three T's or three A's, (laughs) whatever. And so I always say it's attention affirmation and affection when you can encourage people people want to know that you see them you you give them attention and obviously you want to affirm them nothing's worse than somebody saying hey you know without a doubt you're a bum 
Uh, I can still remember that football coach I had at Kansas University back in the leather helmet days. And uh, he said, you know, Steckel, if you got in a race with a pregnant woman, you'd come in third. That's how slow you are, <laughs> you know. And I still remember that. Well, to say the least, you know, I think you, people need to be affirmed, not discouraged. And then lastly, affection. I knew that when I, as a coach or as a leader, if I, I could put my arm around a young man and uh, kick him in the tail at the same time, I had something going. But what was really unique is standing on the field, and every so often a player would come up to me and put his shoulder and elbow on my shoulder and just stand there and cross his legs. He felt comfortable being around me. I knew I had arrived. So I can't encourage enough parents out there, leaders, coaches, you can't encourage enough. Know they need attention, affirmation, and affection. You know, something that I did, Michael, uh, as president of FCA, and uh, people asked me if I'd do it over again, and the answer is yes, but it was a tough task. Uh, being a Marine, I'm pretty disciplined, but for 12 straight years, I never missed one day, not one day, calling every single staff. We started out with 500. We ended up with 1,500, but I called every single staff on their birthday and spoke to them. Now, I'll tell you what was tough is that donors who gave X number of dollars per year, I'd call the wife on her birthday, the man on his birthday, and them on their anniversary. So those people got three calls a year, not just one. And it took a lot of work. But I got to tell you, they said it was so special for them. It was even more rewarding for me Mm. because as the Lord says in his word, when you give more, you know, you receive more when you give than you receive. And uh, it was a blessing. So for those out there that are in leadership, People cannot get enough of encouragement. Mm-hmm. I keep a little uh, stack of uh, card stock things in my briefcase. It's a little stationary. It's a little easy thing to write a few words on. And uh, some weeks I'm about three, some weeks five. And it's amazing how, you know, just thinking about a person, dropping my note, thanking for this or that, praying for you today, jot a verse down. And I can travel, you know, around the country and run into somebody. And he'll say, open his Bible. I had a guy open his Bible and say, I had that card from you. Yes. It's in my Bible. Yes. It's crazy. You know, it's crazy. It's true. But it's somebody took, you know, four minutes to write some words on a piece of paper and put it, not an email, not a text, which is fine, but there's something substantial about, you know, I thought about you, praying for you, encourage you, you do a great job, but I appreciate you so much. And, and how we just, we long for that, don't we? I think the listeners would think that when they go out to the mailbox every day to get their mail filled with junk mail, <laughs> and, and they go through it, the first thing they look for is envelopes that are handwritten. handwritten. And they'll open those first, and that's why. But how often do people get that anymore? Yeah. And I think women are so good at encouraging yes. one another and passing on positive thoughts, and men aren't. <laughs> and I know my uh, my young career in the Minnesota Vikings, for those that are football fans listening, uh, I worked for a gentleman named Bud Grant, who was a Hall of Fame coach. Vikings went to four Super Bowls. Yes, they lost, but they went to the Super Bowls. <clears throat> and I remember him taking me under his wings, and he said to me one day, you know, Les, uh, do you know why our business is so insecure? And I said, no, Bud, why is that? And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, because it's made up of insecure people. And I've learned over the years that insecure men have a very difficult time complimenting somebody else because they don't get complimented. And I'm not handing a compliment out if no one's handing one out to me. And I still to this day remember when Bud told me that at age 31. I'm now 71. 40 years later, it still holds up. 
you know, Dad, I will probably someday write like a 20 things I learned from my dad, Michael Leasley, or a... just 20. <laughs> well, yeah, I probably could do a, a hundred, like a Tuesdays with Maury. Let's see my life with Michael. I don't know. Um, but if I even Let, let's don't say we did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to have to. But if I boil down even to the top five things I've heard you say over and over and over in that top five list would absolutely be everybody's under encouraged. It's true. I, I was with a physician yesterday, and he's a very successful, uh, very godly, good man. And when I encourage him, you just see this sponge just mm-hmm. soak things up. We're all critical. I mean, goodness gracious, social media has taken us into a ditch where we can say whatever we want in a second and be vitriolic, nasty, using horrible language and tones we would never say to a person's face. Well, we might. <laughs> but as a believer, to encourage other people, and yeah. especially as a leader, um, when your mom and I were raising you all as kids, one of our mantras we repeated was, if you criticize them, they won't change. If you encourage them, they may change. Mm. No one ever changes because you're a horrible baseball player. You swing the bat horribly. You don't know what you're doing. You're a terrible cook. You should Mm -hmm. never. No one's going to learn and grow. But that was a great job, honey. Next time, why don't we try this? You're encouraging, encouraging, encouraging. And I think we underestimate the power of encouraging. And that really is a lot of Nehemiah's message is Mm -hmm. encouraging. Now, he's going to reprimand. But he is a stellar leader in encouraging people for what God has done in Mm. their lives. Mm. That's good. I think we all have had bosses or leaders we worked for who were not encouraging, who never gave a word of encouragement the entire time we worked under their leadership. And can also, hopefully, we can all identify folks that were incredibly encouraging. I have several managers and leaders that come to mind that I can think, I mean, at least weekly, if not daily, would encourage something that I was doing right. And that only propelled me to work harder, to work longer, sure. to do better work sure. for them in the long run. Yeah, a good word goes a long way. Yeah. And even more so than perks and raises and time off. It's Truly. A, if you esteem them. One thing Howard Hendricks taught us, you talk about things that you remember I said, so many that Prof said, but he would say, exhort in private, encourage in public. mm and when you use someone's name in a comment or message or publicly, you point out, you know, John here did a phenomenal job on the team. And you all contributed, no doubt, but we owe it to John for whatever. I mean, John's 10 feet taller all of a sudden. He's sitting yeah. up straight in a chair. Yeah. You know, Sue did a phenomenal job with this project. She worked early and late, and we owe her a debt of gratitude. And people will, they'll work harder for that, yeah. most people, than they will for a title or a raise, or a time off. Um, We like those things, granted, but isn't God our encourager? Isn't he encouraging us towards salvation, encouraging us to live righteously, encouraging us to grow and mature, and uh, what power a leader has to encourage people around him or her? That's good. Well, another trait that you pulled specifically from chapter 7 and 8 of Nehemiah in the leadership process is this idea that great leaders know their limits. Tell me about that. Well, one of the unfortunate uh, paradigms we have of older leaders, I think it's it's different today. I think people in their 40s, 30s, and 20s understand this better. But I think those of us in the older decades tend to think we have to know everything and do everything and be on top of everything. Mm-hmm. And you can't. Um, again, we mentioned profit 
priest and king mm-hmm. in this episode. No one possessed all of those. Jesus is the only one who is going to possess all those roles. And Nehemiah was not a priest. He brings in Ezra. Ezra is not a leader in the same way Nehemiah is. Mm-hmm. And so you see these different roles and knowing the limitations. Even when he assigns people uh, the jobs on the wall and their particular tasks, uh, a great leader is one who knows, I can't do that. For example, I'm not a numbers person. I'm not an accounting person. I'm not a, a micromanager person. And for me to do those things, I can do them to a degree. I can handle a Excel chart and P&L and budgets. But if I lived there, I'd go crazy. Mm-hmm. But I have friends who love to live in that sandbox. They Their whole life is a spreadsheet. They love Excel <laughs> charts. Give it to them, they're happy. So we're foolish to think we have to do all these things. We're wise to say, you know, that person does it better than me. And it doesn't diminish a leader. I've asked some, so-and-so to take this part of the project yeah. because they're better at this than I am. And I lean on them for their advice. And uh, when I was in Chicago at a role there, I often went to one of our HR employees who'd been there almost 40 years at the time. I trusted him. So I wanted to hear Lloyd's take on things. Lloyd, will you run with this? And he would. He'd get up early and he'd stay up late to get it done because he had a cachet and a credibility factor that I could never have. Because he'd been in that role almost 40 years at that time and did a very good job. So a leader's a fool. Not to understand, I've got limits. Those people have strengths. Let them help not just me, but the whole. Mm-hmm. And I believe most people get it. Most people are like, wow, that leader's got some humility. He knows, she knows they don't have all those skill sets. And uh, that's leadership, bringing the resources to bear to influence people. Well, this person can influence people better than I can influence people in that area. Yep. Well, we're going to listen in to a piece of a conversation you had with Mike Glenn. But for folks who may not live in Nashville, Tennessee, and know who Mike Glenn is, tell us a little bit about Mike. Mike's a great friend. He's a neighbor. Uh, He's the pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church, which is a phenomenal ministry in the middle Tennessee area. And they're even expanding their reach to all of Tennessee. Mike is probably best known for a book called Kairos, which he wrote to help people who were in the music industry, many of whom performed on weekends and traveled and therefore couldn't go to church. Mm. So he began this young adult ministry on Tuesday evenings that was huge Mm -hmm. in its heyday, uh, ministering to folks who were not available to go to church on Sunday and left a big imprint on people's hearts and ministry for many, many years. Um, but he's a, he's a good old boy. He's a great Baptist preacher, a good friend, and I always love being with Mike. Every pastor, uh, my story as well as yours and pastors we know, there are things you dream and pray and long for and they don't happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to go through a whole process about, okay, is God in it? Is man resisting it? All the mm-hmm. different ways we we assuage ourselves That's that right. it's not a bad idea. <laughs> but how, how does a guy know his limits? You know, and, and again, in Nehemiah, we see a guy who knew his limits. He yeah. knew what he was about to accomplish. He also knew what he couldn't do or wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I think some guys today, we watch our heroes. I don't mean that disparagingly. We watch people that are enormously successful mm-hmm. and we dream like, why can't I be, you know, so-and-so or be like that or have this giant auditorium or have a Brentwood Baptist or whatever. 
Um, but we've got limitations. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a gift. Some people have gifts. No one has all the gifts. And and Jesus does that on purpose so that we, we, we need each other. So that uh, as when we get together, there's something about in our togetherness, in our diversity, that makes the glory of God known in a way that one person cannot do alone. So the biblical teaching is you don't have all the gifts. And there are some that you need to recognize other people have been given that gift, and that's why they're on the team. The other thing is the world does a sneaky thing to us. One, it tells you you can do anything you want to do. Well, that's a lie. You can't. You can be anything you, you want. Be you can be anything you want to be. One day. That's right. No, you can't. <laughs> you know, you know that. You know, Michael Jordan had those two hundred dollar tennis shoes with the thing, tagline, "You can be like Mike." Well, no, you can't. You just. You're just a little short, fat, white guy in really expensive tennis shoes. And he couldn't play baseball. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> uh, so so the understanding is, uh, you know, the Proverbs raise up a child in the way, and we always hammer the way. Maybe it's raise up a child in the way that he should go. Uh, and the parent, the job of the parent is to help identify the giftedness and the passions of that child and allow him to, to, uh, to develop as God has intended here's the other thing that tell you if you just work hard you can do it no you can't there's certain things you're just not going to be any good at now here's the other thing i found out the church knows what you're not good at and and they love you enough that they're not going to tell you they don't want to hurt your feelings now if you're blessed to have good friends who come around you go you know you stink at this uh then you'll be well served but when you stand up and say here's what i'm good at but here's what i stink at the church knows that, and they're relieved. <laughs> oh, God, I thought I was going to tell him. You know, so, so they'll come around you and say, you know, I can take that off of you. I can do that. I, I can do the administration, but I'm not really good at it. Well, I've got VPs and CPAs and all that. You know, they get teary-eyed at a spreadsheet. You know, I'm bored out of it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, but, but because of that, our finances are impeccable. And and because our finances are impeccable, our giving is encouraged because people trust the system. And when I stand up and say, I don't have anything to do with it, you know, they're relieved that their pastor is not all in the money and that I've got smart people who do that. The, the, the thing I would want for everybody is, one, know your gift. Now, the hard thing about gift is gift is easy because it's gift. You don't know you're good at it. Uh, it's just It's just there. And so you need the body around you to say, Michael, you're good at this. You need to spend more time in the Bible preaching and teaching. You have that gift. And to encourage that gift and and, and let you focus on it. You also need other people around you who will say, I'll take this off of you so you can focus on what you do best. And it's when all of us are working in our gifts and our best that the church really thrives. At a high level, and you, you deal with younger men and women, as do I, um, it's really hard for them and for a lot of guys in mm-hmm. general just to say I'm not good at something. That's right. And you're right, and I do have limitations, and I don't know everything. But on the other hand, it's it's really kind of freeing. Once you get past that, and that's that's demonic, that, that you are unlimited. You know, we've had all these movies come out that you can take a pill and you can be unlimited and all that. And that's always been humanity's weakness, that we wanted to be like God. Oh, God. 
and we want it to be without limits. Uh, but it is the banks of the river that give it its power. It is the limits that give it its power. Otherwise, you just have a pond, but there's no power. So it is the limits that, that God has placed on your life. You know, here's your garden. He didn't give Adam the whole world. Here's your garden, so big by so big. Do this, and I'll have other people take care of the rest. But if you can do that and, and sit in a, in a team and say, hey, I can help you by doing this, and when the other thing says, I can't do that, uh, I will not help you well if I do that, then one, they know it, and two, there's usually somebody around there who says, hey, that's my place, and takes it mm-hmm. and does a hundred times better with it than you ever would. Well, just to recap, we're talking about encouraging and knowing your limits. Both are key aspects of a good leader, of a leadership process. I do not believe you can over-encourage people, and I don't believe you can underestimate. You need to identify your limitations and bring people alongside you who have gifts, strengths, and talents in those areas. And that helps not you simply as a leader. It helps the body of Christ. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Scripture reading by Jason Germain. Jason Germain.